Uh, what I want to talk about today is, uh, just for a few minutes, is to talk about the future. And in particular, I want to talk about your future and, you know, our future together. Uh, this is a frequent subject in the Bible uh, because, you know, our lives are past, present, and future. But sometimes we just tend to, to just stay stuck in this moment we're in, which is important to live in the moment you're in. But we're all supposed to understand where we're going, too, and, you know, what direction our lives are taking us. Now, a lot of times we don't think about our future. It just sort of happens, and we have a passive approach to it. And, and especially when you live in a world where uh, the world seems like it's so big and so overwhelming, and, and you, you know, what control do you have over it, where your life goes? Well, the hope of the gospel is that God says, if I'm involved in your life, your life you have a purpose and a destiny and a future that, that is better than you could ever conceive of. And, but most people, depending on their present circumstances, tend to look at the future based on what they're going through. If you're going through good times, you tend to be a little more optimistic about the future. If you're going through hard times, you tend to be a little more negative about the future. Well, Jesus, and this, 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 the Sermon on the Mount is a moment in Jesus' ministry, and which was probably repeated a number of times, but in Matthew chapter 5, if you open your Bibles and look there with me, there's a little section of that where Jesus takes all these people into the future. He talks to them about the future, their future, and their part in it. And he shows them something about their future and the significance that each of them have, and, and, it, and, it, and it applies to us too, that went beyond what they could have ever imagined. And in Matthew chapter 5, verse 13 to 16... I'm going to start reading at verse 13. Then we're going to pray, and we're going to just unpack this for a minute and try to apply it to us. Jesus said, You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men, that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. So, Father, we, uh, we just want to hear these words, just like they're coming from the mouth of Jesus, as if he was here today reading them to us and speaking them, and, and the meaning that those words brought to those people 2,000 years ago on, on the hills in Galilee as Jesus taught them. We asked that you would take us there and that we could hear your word to them, Lord, and then somehow that that word would be communicated to us and to what you want to say to us from it today. And we pray that the power that those words came with would come to us today. And Lord, that uh, we could see the future, we could see our part in it, and we can see you uh, uh, all involved in our lives in, in ways that uh, we haven't before. And we ask this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. So, in this, this little section of Jesus' longer sermon, Jesus took three objects that they were all familiar with. In fact, very familiar with. He, took, he, he spoke of salt... He spoke of light, and he spoke of a city on a hill. 
And they would have immediately understood that the salt he's talking about is the salt that every household used and what it was for. I'll explain that in a second. And then they, they, they talked about a little lamp because he said a lamp. And, you know, when we think of light, we tend to think of electric uh, fixtures and, and spo- you know, giant spotlights and things. But in their experience, there were torches and there were little lamps. And the lamps were used to illuminate their homes. And most homes in, in the first century would have been one-room buildings. Uh, it was only wealthier people who had more than one room. And, and at night, the sun went down. It was totally pitch black. You could, your life just couldn't stop. Because the sun went down, and so they, uh, for, you know, for centuries, they had used lamps. And then he talked about, the third thing was, a city on a hill. And he was talking about Jerusalem, because everyone knew that Jerusalem, the, the capital of Israel, the, the, the sort of the, the center of, of Jewish life, was a city that was on a hill. And so he said to them, and, and, and it was a, a very strange juxtaposition, he said, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. You are the city. Now, they would have never thought of themselves as the city because the city was this place where the temple was, where God was present. And they wouldn't have seen themselves necessarily as the light of the world because they were a minority. They were a conquered nation. And a lot of the people that were, that, that were drawn to Jesus, many of them were very poor people who certainly were not in any way influential or special in, you know, in their eyes. And then the salt of the earth was a, a, you know, another metaphor. And, but Jesus said to them, whatever you think about your life, what I'm saying to you right now is telling you about the future and your part in it. My plans for the future, the world, there's so much that's just woven into this passage, uh, there's been lots of, of exposition on this. What I want you to get out of this simply first to them is he was saying, you are something. He was telling them, you have an identity. Maybe you don't recognize it. Maybe you don't acknowledge it. Maybe you're reluctant to accept it. But he is saying something to you that, that's called in, in, in grammar an indicative. You are No matter what, this is your identity. He says, you are salt. These are his followers, the people who are the followers of Jesus. He was telling them something about themselves and about who they were and what the future, how that impacted the future. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. You are a city on a hill. Now, each of those objects, again, they would immediately know what salt was for in, in that time, and, and still used this way, is you would take meat, raw meat, cooked meat, and you would pack it in salt, right? You would just pack it in salt, and what that would do is that would preserve it. Because what happens? As soon as you cook something and you, and you present it on a plate, whether you know it or not, bacteria starts forming on the food, and it starts breaking it down. Now, no, that's not a pretty uh, you know, thing to think about, but... That's actually what's happening. That's why we have these things called refrigerators, right? Because we want to slow that process down. But we even know after a while, you know, sometimes you, you ever open a drawer in your refrigerator and go, woo, <laughs> close it back up, close the door, you know. <laughs> you, you know, you put tape around the refrigerator, you, you call uh, 
Volunteers of America, come. Yeah, call your pastor. Come move this refrigerator for me. Because something is decayed in there. Something is corrupted. And what he's saying is, you are salt that I'm putting to restrain corruption. And what else does salt do? Salt enhances. You are the salt of the earth that your your purpose is to bring the best out of people. Now, I know some of us think our our purpose in life is to bring the worst out of people, right? Right? Or maybe you just think there's people who are in your life who are there to bring the worst out of you. But the truth is, Jesus was saying to them, you were meant to restrain corruption and evil by your presence in your life, and you were meant to bring the best out of the world that you're in. And if you're the light of the world, you're supposed to bring light into darkness, into spiritual and moral confusion and darkness. He says, that is your identity if you're my followers, whether you see yourself that way or not, Jesus says that is your identity and your purpose and your calling. And then he says, and not only that, but you're a city set on a hill. In other words, I have, just like Jerusalem is strategically placed and it's visible for miles and miles away. And it's, it's one of those places like a lot of cities in the world that are the, the, the heart of a people. And it has a unique place and position that you do. And now, they may have looked at their lives and go, I'm just a farmer. I'm a dirt farmer. Or I'm a, a, a merchant. You know, I, I make pottery. Or whatever their, their vocation was in life. They didn't look at themselves as, as like... I'm a city on a hill. I'm like, nobody knows who I am. My, my family forgets my name. But Jesus was saying to them, no, that's not true. This is who you are. Now, it's hard for us to hear that, except if we stop for a moment and realize we feel a lot of the same way they do. It, it's hard for me to imagine my life in all honesty at times, as having any impact on the corruption around me and, and the, the problems around me. They just seem to go on and flourish no matter what. If, if you took me away, it wouldn't make any difference. If you put me there, it doesn't make any difference. Sometimes I feel like that. And, and, and sometimes I look and I think, I don't think I'm bringing the best out of people. And, and I don't bring, I'm not necessarily bringing any light into people's lives. And, and I'm, I certainly don't feel like I'm a city on a hill. But Jesus said to them, that is your identity. Now, all of them, you, could, you have to think about this, as they, Jesus would say these things, these, these simple teachings, and then people would walk away, and they would talk about them and ponder them, and they would find all kinds of meaning in these simple sayings of Jesus, because the, the God has invested truth and life in them, that as you ponder them, they, that life begins to come out of them and impact you. Jesus is talking about the world, and he's saying, you guys know, you feel around you the, the corruption and the evil and the darkness and how powerless you feel at times, that you're just pushed around by uh, evil. The evil in your own life and the life of people close to you is something that you just wrestle with. What do you do when you feel that? Jesus says, you guys are the answer 
to those problems, and none of that's going to change unless you're involved in those problems, in those people, in those situations. So he's, he's in a sense, as he's talking to them, he's writing on their hearts, and he's marking them, and saying something about who they are that they'll never forget. Now, some people didn't have hearts that were open to that. And you may be sitting here today, and and maybe your heart isn't quite open to this idea yet. I prayed, you know, we prayed quite a bit this week that that people's hearts would be open to hear this, because this is something for us as a church, it's also something for you individually. And these people felt the pressure of the evil of the world around them in the exact same way we do. We are more distracted by things today today which in some ways helps us to avoid feeling the press of evil. Uh, when, you know, when you have resources like many of us have, it can, it can give you a buffer from feeling the pressure of evil, but it still manages to get through our best defenses and our best plans and preparations and and it touches our lives in ways that bring us pain and difficulty brings pain in the lives of people we love and we feel it and jesus is saying to them god has a solution the kingdom of god's coming into the world it's coming to your life and god's whole plan depends on you that he's invested in you in, in relation to, because of your relationship with Jesus, he's invested in you something that is a solution to the problems of the world around you. And he's trying to get them to look at things differently. We see the world around us. We see problems and they seem so big and we are so small. But Jesus is trying to show them that is it distorted. You're looking through the wrong end of the telescope. That you've, you've turned the telescope around and you're looking at it and that stuff seems so big. It's not big. It's not more powerful. Now, they were a community. God was saying, you are a community of world changers. Now, that's the last thing most of us think about ourselves. I'm not a world changer. That would be the, the reply, the response from the average person if they were honest. Those people heard Jesus say to them, you, if you're salt and light in the city on a hill, you are a community of world changers. And they would have just shaken that off and go, I don't know. I'm not sure, Jesus. You are, it seems, but I'm not sure I am. Maybe I could make a little difference. But you have to understand, at a certain point, they would have walked away from this, and here's what they would have remembered. You know, it's funny how what Jesus just said sounds a lot like what we've been taught about the history of our people. Because a long time ago, I mean, our father Abraham, in the book of Hebrews, he, you know, he was just minding his own business, and God came to him, and he was an old dude with no kids, really not much going for him. And God said, I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to make you a great nation, and I'm going to bless all the nations of the world through you. And whoever is against you, I'm going to be against them, and whoever's for you, I'm going to be for them. And you know what? 
We do feel small, but it seems like God is looking for unlikely people to reveal his great power in the world through, that he wants to bring good into the world, into this dark, broken world, and he seems like he chooses unlikely people, and I'm an unlikely person. I wonder if what Jesus said really applies to me. And then they would have thought a little more, and they would have talked, and they would have discussed more of the stories. And if you have any exposure to the Old Testament at all, I, I mean, it's like you could pick out almost any story and see this point illustrated in it that God, is, God had called the Jewish people and that he had positioned them and that he was using them to be salt and light in a city on a hill. And even in the book of Isaiah, specifically and explicitly, the prophet says to the Jewish people, you are a light to the nations. You are the light of the world. Now, Jesus said in John 18, 12, he was the light of the world. Because it's, it's not that we're unique. It's not that they were unique. They were unique and we're unique because God, we've received God into our lives through Jesus, through his son. And because he lives in us, now there's this uniqueness about us that's not innate, it's not mine. It's derived from him. But now it's me. Me and Jesus are one now. I'm in Christ. You're in Christ, if you're in Christ. If you're a follower of Jesus, he lives in you. And he says, you are meant to be an influence like salt is. You're meant to be restraining evil and bringing the best out of the world in which you live. And you're supposed to be a light, bringing truth and understanding and wisdom into the darkest, the, the darkest places. That's what lamps are for. You don't turn a, I mean, you don't light a lamp in a room like this. Well, maybe you do if you're trying to get some Christmas effect, right? But in a room like this that's, that's bright already, you don't light a lamp. You light a lamp where the darkness is. You see the picture? And Jesus was coming into their world where they were in, enveloped in darkness. There's a, a story in the Old Testament about Solomon. And in, at the time of Solomon, he was considered the greatest king, at least Israel under him, experienced its greatest peace and prosperity. And his reign was so extraordinary that people would come from other countries to see what it was like to live under a, a king who was that wise and, and that, whose administration of justice was so good. And there was a, a, a queen from another country who was called the Queen of Sheba. She came to bring gifts to Solomon. She came to ask him questions. She came really to see if everything she had heard was true. And in 1 Kings 10, she, the story... That these, these folks who were hearing Jesus, they would have gone back and gone, wow, remember when the Queen of Sheba came? Who was a pagan from a pagan country? She came and she saw the wisdom of Solomon. And she saw like his, his, the meals that were served in his, uh, in his uh, royal palace and the way that the country was run. And they could see the goodness that was there and the prosperity. And she became a believer in the one true God. Solomon was a light. Now, he eventually went off the rails and 
had some real problems, but it wasn't because God hadn't given him something unique and special. Now, they would have gone on, they would have, but they also would have remembered as they go through these stories, like the story of Jonah. Anybody remember the story of Jonah? Jonah was a prophet who was sent to a foreign city. And he didn't want to go because he didn't care about those Gentile foreigners. He said, they deserve to go to hell and I'm not going to do anything to keep them from a speedy trip there. <laughs> and God kept saying, go to Nineveh. And so if you know the geography of the Middle East, if you can imagine... Uh, I'm like this little strip of land, Israel, and Nineveh is over this way towards Iraq, modern-day Iraq, and the Mediterranean is this way. It says Jonah, who lived in kind of the, uh, the, high, the high coastal plains, he went down to the Mediterranean, got on a ship that was going away from Nineveh. And of course, you know the story. God uh, sent a storm. They threw... Poor Jonah out because he said, it's my fault that they have the storm. As soon as he's out of the boat, the storm stops. And then he comes to his senses and he repents and he gets a, a, a fish. Uh, a, a God sends a cab and uh, scoops him up and drops him off on the beach. He's bleached white probably from the digestive juices of being inside this great fish, which is not ironic in itself. He's, he's preaching a message of forgiveness and he's cleansed in a very unique way. And he goes right to Nineveh. And God shows mercy on Nineveh. In fact, what he says, and he's a reluctant prophet. He is a reluctant, unlikely world changer. Which this is one of the things that they would have picked up as they were thinking about the story of their people. They were called to be a community of world changers. But as you look through the stories of the Jews... They were unlikely people, but they were also reluctant. I mean, that's the best way you could put it, right? And even when they were in Babylon, God said to them in Jeremiah 29, he told the Jews that were in Babylon who'd been exiled from their homeland because they'd been unfaithful to God. God said to them, I want you to go into that city, Babylon, which was the capital of the nation that had just invaded your country and devastated it and taken you away as... as Forced labor, I want you to go into that city and I want you to live for the good of that city. I want you to pray for that city. I want you to, to get married and build farms and work and give your lives for that city, for the peace of that city. And God used this language that they thought he would have only reserved for living for the peace of Jerusalem. But he was saying, no, you're meant to be world changers wherever I place you. And it's like God just picked up the Jewish people as, as, as salt and he took them over to Babylon and he just dumped it there and he said, I want to work you in there and I want you to be the light there. And where, where was one of the most influential, if not any more than other Bible books, but one of the most studied books of the Bible was written from Babylon by a man named Daniel. In the midst of darkness, he was being light and salt. And it was very difficult and challenging for him there. And that's the whole book of Daniel is, is about missionary work in a sense. 
But we read it as about the last days, but it was about a man being a light to the nations and, and interpreting the dreams of kings, that God gave these pagan kings dreams. God was at work in Babylon. God's at work wherever we are. He's at work everywhere. He's at work where we aren't, and he wants us to be there. So they would have realized, huh, we're a reluctant community. And there's a sociologist named Robert Bella, and he was famous. Uh, he taught at University of Cal Berkeley, and he wrote a book years ago called The Habits of the Heart. He's written a lot of different books. He just died recently. But he was a, uh, a specialist in Japan and Korea and, and Asian nations. And one of the things in one of his works, he studied the influence in Japan, which Japan is a, a very non-Christian country. There's maybe 3% of the people in Japan even go to church at all. It's, it's been very resistant to the gospel for, you know, centuries. And even after World War II, when you thought after the war, so many other places opened up to the gospel, Japan didn't. Well, Japan has all the problems, as prosperous as they are, as, as, as any nation does. And Robert Bella wrote about the, the Protestant there were Protestant Christians in Japan who, now remember, only about 3% of the people in Japan go to church at all. So a small subset of those 3% of people, who knows how few people that was, but a small group of Protestant Christians began to pray and be concerned about Japan and, and a lot of the problems that they saw there with, with labor and with the way women were treated, and minorities. Because like all countries, Japan is a racist country. America is a racist country. France is a racist country. I mean, racism is everywhere. You know, we aren't the only racist country in the world, believe it or not. Nigeria is a racist country. Uh, racism is everywhere. Nobody has a corner on that market. And... These Christians, mostly Japanese Christians, Protestants, they began to lead reform after reform after reform in Japan. And over the course of about a century, half a century, they transformed parts of, this, of, of the nation that had just been really sores on, on their society. And Robert Bella just said, his point was that he says, if 2% of a people get a vision for a different life and they work together, they can change everything. And he said, as a sociologist, there's plenty of examples of that. But Jesus is looking at these people and he's looking at us and he's saying something that these people would have heard and it's been corroborated over and over and over in history. But he would have said, you guys, your reluctance impacts your ability to be world changers. And I think a lot of times we're reluctant because, honestly, we just don't think we have it in us. And we don't. But that's what the gospel says is, in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, it says, if anyone is in Christ, they're a new creation. Old things have passed away. They're, they're, the old things are gone. They're dead. They're buried and new things have come from God, from God, in Christ. That that's, the, that's the key phrase. We are a community of world changers in Christ, or because of Christ. 
If Christ lives in you, you are the salt of the earth. Whether you're being very salty and you're fulfilling that, it doesn't change the fact that you are and that you have the potential to be more. Now, look at the two pictures of salt and light. This is the individual and the community. Jesus talks about salt. You never think of a, of a grain of salt. You always think of a, a container of salt, a community. It's a picture of us, the impact we're meant to have. We're supposed to be rubbed into the world. But we think of the church a lot of times at, and only when we're gathered like this. It's the picture that most of us think. And we look at our lives, and the, I mean, the simple lesson from this is that we're not supposed to be, this, this whole idea of being a, a community of world changers is not optional. Do you understand? It's not optional. The purpose of salt, which is what you are, is to preserve from corruption and to bring out the best. The purpose of light is to guide and to bring truth and beauty and goodness and wisdom. And if a lamp isn't doing that, it's not serving its purpose and it's worthless. If salt, as Jesus said, could lose its saltiness, and there's an argument, does salt ever really lose its saltiness? No. But, but again, any kind of comparison God makes with us is not perfect. The point is, we can lose our saltiness. We can refuse to function as the lights that we're meant to. And so the world, the best that's in the world, doesn't come out. And the evil is not restrained. And, and ignorance is not educated. And, and goodness and beauty and truth are not communicated and portrayed. And the question, I think, that, you know, just to draw a conclusion, is simple. If this is true, and when, when we planted this church 30-plus years ago, we, Kathy and I, moved here with this whole idea that, that we had seen, that we'd experienced, was we knew we were the salt of the earth. We knew we were the light of the world. We had no idea how much we were those things. But we met other unlikely people who had been salt and light and had impacted us. And it imprinted in our hearts something that we want to pass that on. We want to see a community birth that does that, that lives that way. And so, like every church that God births, and, and which he births every church, his vision is for a community of world changers. And that may say, sound too grandiose. The world doesn't, we're not going to perfect the world. Let me, let me translate something for you real quickly in case... You know, I've, I've left you with the impression that uh, there's a six-foot-four idealist up here. You know, I'm a dreamer. I'm just, you know, I'm not the only one. Someday you'll join up. Beautiful song, but that's not reality. That's not even God's world. That's not even the world he wants to build. God wants there to be differences. He wants there to be culinary differences and nations and, and all the things that are out there, all the diversity, but he wants there to be unity and beauty and he wants us to hold together and love and peace and, and things that, you know, are in the heart of John Lennon's song. But he doesn't have the, the heart of it right. And Jesus didn't create us to be idealists, but he wants us to have high ideals. We can change 
the world in significant ways, and then we pass the baton on from generation to generation to the people after us, and hopefully they get it, and then they take the responsibility to be salt and light in a city on a hill. And you can go back, if you look closely enough at the way the world has changed, you will see Christians were in the middle of it. And where you see the world doesn't change, it's because the church isn't there. It's not that, that good people... Excuse me, it's not that, that there aren't people that are trying to be good and bringing about good that aren't Christians. That's true. There are groups like that. But if you look at where the change has been most profound and most lasting, it's been where the church has been at the forefront of it, where we've been salt and where we've been light. And if you look at where there's been change, the people who bring about the change, if they're not Christians, they borrow from our ideas. They take our stuff because you can't find that in the atheistic world. There's no answer. There's no reason to be just in a world where there's no God and no purpose. There isn't. There's just cruelty. I don't mean everybody who doesn't believe in God is cruel. I just mean that idea when you strip God out of things, you strip compassion away. Why be compassionate? You're an accident. You, your life has no purpose or meaning. But Jesus came along, God came into the world to say every life has meaning and purpose and value. Everybody. The people you don't like and the people you do like. All of them. God came in the flesh amongst very poor people to say something about poor people. Everything about Jesus' life just said something about God's value on us. And so... The question I think we have to ask is, where do you have your identity? Do you look at yourself as salt and light? If you're a follower of Jesus. Now, you may be here and thinking, I'm, just, I'm not buying into following Jesus yet, John. I'm, I'm thinking about that. I come to the vineyard on and off, and, and I'm wrestling with that. But those of you that do say we're followers of Jesus, where are you at? Where is your identity? This is who you are, Jesus says. And if, if you are finding that inconvenient, Jesus doesn't say your life is worthless, but what he's saying, when he says that salt that's lost its savor is worthless, it's only good to be thrown on the ground, what he's saying is, you're wasting your life. It doesn't matter what other people say to you, how much other people may admire you and affirm you, if you're not living for Jesus in your vocation as salt and light, and you can do that in any vocation, well, without belaboring the point, you know what I mean. There's criminal things that, and immoral things that are, are not legitimate vocations. But are you a Kappa Gamma girl, or are you salt and light? Or are you... A software engineer, first and foremost. Or are you a salt, salt and light person who also happens to be a software engineer? Are you a stay-at-home mom? Or are you salt and light? Are you unemployed? Or are you salt and light? What is your identity? And if we're going to talk about the future, and, and our future, you, you can't evade that question. You can't look at it and go, well, that doesn't really have any meaning to me because I'm just struggling in life. Do you think that there are any people who 
on that hillside who heard Jesus say that, there's very few of them that weren't struggling. It was a subsistence level economy. They lived from harvest to harvest. They didn't have near the, the, uh, the things that we have today that make our lives easier. But they knew, as they heard Jesus, that he was inviting them into something to leave that life of just being identified by your career or by whatever and step into an identity that gave you a significance that your heart is starving for. There's not one of us in this room that aren't starving for a life that has real significance. And in, in that world, you may think of all the, the labor-saving devices that could have made their lives easier. But let me tell you something. What made their life work and manageable and even in some ways flourish and thrive was salt and light. Those were two basic aspects of their lives which they couldn't do without. They were crucial. They were significant. And our community needs us to be salt and light. They need the vineyard to be salt and light. They need people who call themselves part of the vineyard to be salt and light. And I hope you go home this week and like this, you reflect on this and ask yourself, Because a lot of us, because of our culture, we have a lot of self-esteem, right? We, it's just something that gets drummed into us. But the truth is, oftentimes, that wears off, and we see things as they are. And, and we are made the image of God, and we are beloved by God. But sometimes when we look at our lives, we think, I'm, I'm pretty much wasting a lot of my potential. I'm wasting a lot of, of the equity that God's given me. And sometimes the equity that you worked hard to realize the, the grace of God that's come in your life. And over the next couple of weeks, we're going to keep talking about the future. And I really believe there's, there are ways of looking at ourselves that we're going to have to unlearn. And there's some attitudes that we're going to have to get rid of. And we're going to have to replace them with biblical understanding and biblical attitudes and biblical behaviors. Because we're getting lulled into sleep in a way that's robbing us of the significance that we're meant to have. And again, this, the, the picture that God wants us to, to see with salt and light is, think about what people call in our in our some people have termed the misery index in our community. The misery index in our community is things like unemployment, the, the general health of physical health of our community, the state of our families, you know, the, uh, in relation to human capital, how are we doing? Is the divorce rate going up? Is it, are more children being born without two parents? Is violence and crime going up? 
Now, it's been going down for a long time, but recently it's starting to go up again. And in our nation for years, you would think that it isn't. But violence and crime have gone down in our country, but they're starting to go up again. What about less tangible drains on human capital? The, the quality of education. Uh, the, the, the quality of the workplace. I mean, how many of us in the last six or seven years since the recession really hit, have we been working longer and longer and longer and longer hours? Longer and longer and longer and longer hours. There's a point where that really takes a toll on what's really important. This is, this is something that we're supposed to impact. It really is. That, that health care would be available to all and affordable. Not just available to all, but beyond what we could ever afford. It's, it's, we're moving towards that. Even with the reforms that we've had. It's, it's difficult. We are the, we are the ones, if, if you believe Jesus, we're the ones that are going to make a difference in that. And all those things. And, and there are people, God's sending our nation, who are immigrants who are gifts and blessings to our nation. And we're struggling to see their potential. But you can go to countries in Europe whose birth rate is so low that that the nations are shrinking and dwindling because they're not growing. They're dying out. They didn't embrace the goodness of children. And now it's costing them. And in his mercy, God sends immigrants. Our nation is a nation of immigrants. But we're struggling with welcoming them and figuring out how do we do this. Whatever your politics are, you, you can't ignore the fact that God sends gifts to us wrapped in unusual, unexpected packages. And part of our heart as a church is to care for the poor, and welcome and love immigrants and strangers, and our enemies, and anybody and everybody, because that's what Jesus did. And you're part of that. And the question is, will you embrace that as an identity? Why don't you stand with me? This week, think about, if you, know, you want to ponder a question, a take-home question from this, what is your identity in? What would you say, this is my identity? Now, I don't mean... Every person you meet, you just have to say, I'm salt and light and city on a hill, brother. <laughs> I just mean, because, you know, that, that feels kind of strange, <laughs> you know, at, you know at, at the coffee shop. How you doing? Well, I'm salt, light, and city on a hill, brother. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Step back a little bit from the bar here. But what do you carry in your heart? Can you hear the words of Jesus saying to you today, and putting your name before that you, or replacing that you. Mary Hamrick, you're the salt of the earth. John Lieb, you're the light of the world. Tom Gillian, you're a city on a hill. If you aren't hearing that today, what identity is blocking you from hearing that? What is your identity? Because we're going to talk about next week, how do we... How, how do we become salt and light? What does that mean? But if we don't get the identity part right, we, we won't even stop and consider what it means to go down that road. Okay? So let's just bow your heads with me. Lord, we just uh, 
thank you again for the start of a new year. We know it's just another day. That the, a calendar is just something that we've created to help us mark our lives and give order. But we do know that you give us each day, and that each day is a gift from you. You've made it, and we want to be faithful with it. It's a resource. It's a blessing. It's an opportunity. And our lives are the same thing. Lord, I pray for each person that's here right now that, that your spirit, the weight of the Holy Spirit would come upon them and, and just impress in their hearts the truth that if they're a follower of Jesus, that they're salt and in light and a city on a hill. And they're meant to restrain evil and bring out the best in people and bring light and beauty and goodness in the situations. And that as a city on a hill, they've been positioned where they are for that purpose. And Lord, help them to wrestle with the implications of this week in whatever way that's meaningful in their lives and the way that you're speaking to them. And I pray that the enemy would not be able to steal this word in any way, that that every heart that hears it today would be a good heart, that this word could get, this truth from you, Jesus, would be planted in their hearts. And let it bear fruit today. In Jesus' name, amen.